pushing a fibroid bill in Congress, which I'm super excited oh about. Oh my God, that's amazing. Yeah. And what's even wilder is that our future VP uh, is the sponsor in the Senate for the fibroid bill. So now we're waiting to see who will now carry that torch and take over now that she's assuming a new role. Um, but uh, Congresswoman Yvette Clark sponsored it in the House and Senator Kamala Harris sponsored the fibroid bill in the Senate. And I'm so pleased because I worked really hard to advocate for that legislation with many, many meetings on Capitol Hill. And I, it was really a gift of 2020 to see that legislation move forward despite the pandemic. So um, it will provide four years of funding um, for fibroid research at NIH, uh, $30 million for each year. So we're going to start asking everyone to write letters to support that legislation and research. And it's just really, really promising. I'm super excited, as you can tell. Welcome to Femtech Focus with Dr. Brittany Barreto, exploring the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. to the Femtech Focus podcast, where we have meaningful and provocative conversations with Femtech experts. These academics, doctors, and innovators tell us about the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Barreto, and today's episode is sponsored by Witham. Witham is a forward-thinking, technology-driven advisory and accounting firm committed to helping companies be more profitable, efficient, and productive in today's complex business environment. Witham's dedicated Femtech team is proud to partner with members of the Femtech community. Get to know their team at witham.com backslash femtech. In today's episode, I interview Satiria Venable, founder and CEO of the Fibroid Foundation. Satiria is a patient advocate who was diagnosed with fibroids at the age of 26. After receiving the recommendation of a hysterectomy in her 20s, she was prompted to explore other options to manage her fibroid diagnosis. She began a quest for information which led her to found the Fibroid Foundation. Unfortunately, she soon discovered that there were limited resources and information available to women who, like her, had severely symptomatic fibroids. Frustrated by the return of her fibroids after four surgeries, she was determined to find answers. The Fibroid Foundation was developed, and a substantial network within the medical community now exists. Satiria is a sought-after speaker. She's been featured online in the Washington Post, Huffington Post. She's published in the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology, the Fibroid Foundation takes a multifaceted approach to fibroid education and leading awareness for the negative impact fibroids have on women, their families, their jobs, and the economy. In fact, in this episode, we learn about a recent research spending bill that Satiria got passed in the U.S. government system with the help of none less our new vice president, Kamala Harris. 
so, so, so exciting. Enjoy the episode. Hey, Satiria, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brittany. I'm so excited to be here today. Thanks for having me. Of course. Very excited to have you on the show. Um, You have a great virtual background. Thank you. I try. (laughs) I switch it up from time to time, but this is the look for today. Yeah. You know, I have a, a friend, Alice, who does femtech work at McKinsey, and she was on maternity leave for a bunch of this year. And she said it was crazy for her to come back to work and see how everyone's Zoom game just like totally advanced. She was like, I, I, I need to get a new camera. I need a microphone. Exactly. Like people's Zoom game is yeah. like really good now. First I ordered a microphone, then I ordered the light and then I started playing with the background. She's absolutely right. right? Like yeah. if anybody is still not having a virtual background is using your regular camera and it's below your nose. Mm-mm. something's wrong. <laughs> you got to step it up. <laughs> I agree. Well, Satiria, I am so excited to chat with you today. You have done a lot of fantastic work for women. And so I really want to get into your story, but let's start with your personal background. Where are you from? You know, what did you study? You know, what, what did you do? How did you end up here? Oh, wow. That's that's an interesting story. I'm, I'm a Baltimore girl, so um, I'm back in Maryland, but I was gone for a long time. And um, I actually studied architecture in college, which is not at all what I'm doing now. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think the creative juices have gone in a, many other directions, um, mm-hmm. but uh, I actually, unfortunately, started this organization, the Fibroid Foundation, from a negative experience that I had with a personal health challenge. Mm. And after my second of four fibroid surgeries, I started looking into the statistics behind uterine fibroids. And I was shocked to learn that up to 70% of women will be diagnosed with uterine fibroids by the age of 50 and 80% of women of color. And I just wondered why no one was screaming from the rooftops. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. Wow. Yeah, and I, I consider myself pretty good at researching and finding resources and physicians, and I couldn't find anyone to treat me. Wow. So I realized that there were many, many women who just kind of exhaled when I asked them, you know, or do you suffer from fibroids? And they were like, yes, I just wanted someone to talk to. You know, women really opened up. Mm-hmm. So then I thought, okay, there might be something here. So I started blogging my experience. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's what kind of led me over the course of 10 years doing that and my full-time job to start the organization. Wow. And, you know, for endometriosis, usually one of the biggest things is that it takes so many years to finally get a diagnosis. Is that the same for fibroids that it's misdiagnosed or ignored, or is it quicker to diagnose, but then there's like just no support? I think now it's quicker to diagnose for sure than Uh endo. But I do believe that women aren't often offered all treatment options. They're just told um, like, yeah, yep, they're told hysterectomy. What you have. They're told hysterectomy and <gasps> if they're severe, which is yeah. completely unacceptable. No, of course. I mean, 
Mm -hmm. keys. And so um, can you describe for our listeners, like what would be the symptoms of fibroids and like also just as and also sometimes I, I throw my listeners under the bus saying like, Oh, can you explain this for them? It really is for me because <laughs> I'm like, I'm learning too. I'm also curious to know, like, so what are the symptoms, but also like, is this something that usually happens uh, at a certain point in your life? Like, is it associated with like menopause or like your first period or maybe not at all? Can you talk to us about that? All great questions. So uterine fibroids can have a whole host of symptoms. I often call them a chameleon because they display Mm -hmm. very differently in all women. Some women could have 20 fibroids with no symptoms. Um, Or you could be like me who had three fibroids for a long time that weren't very large that were wreaking havoc. Mm -hmm. So it varies greatly. But some of the telltale signs that there could be a problem are heavy menstrual bleeding, if you're having breakthrough bleeding between periods, Mm. um, if you're having pain, significant pain, or if you're fatigued from the bleeding, which means that you might be anemic, um, you could have leg pain or back pain or chills. So it it varies greatly. And the, the best advice I think women can get is just know your body. And if anything changes, just make a note of it and share that with a physician whom you trust. Mm -hmm. Um, That's really the best way to really stay on top of the symptoms of uterine fibroids. Because we know our bodies best, right? Mm -hmm. I actually actually think uh, about when you said that, I was thinking about my dogs. So, you know, I'm their mother, right? I'm Mm -hmm. their mother. And my, you know, dog will look at me a certain way and I know exactly what he's thinking. He's Mm -hmm. hungry or he's got to go out or he's this or he's that, or there's a noise that's bothering him. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, friends are like, how did you know that? And like, I'm his mother. I I can tell just a twinge in his muscles a little bit, you know, exactly what's happening. And so like, we got to do that for our own bodies too. I think that's great. That's a great analogy because oftentimes the medical system can be intimidating for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And I often say women are experts in their own body. Mm-hmm. So just have the confidence of knowing that you know more about your own body than anyone else. And and hopefully that's empowering to be able to find the voice that you need to ask for the support that you need. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think in terms of when women are diagnosed, we're learning that women are really developing uterine fibroids sometimes in their teens. Mm -hmm. And Oftentimes, it becomes a bigger issue during the reproductive years. Okay. But we we support women along the whole spectrum. So Mm -hmm. from teen, college age, through their 20s, 30s, 40s, and even into perimenopause, menopause. Because sometimes at menopause, the fibroids will shrink and become a non-issue. But that's not always the case. Okay. And what is a fibroid? A fibroid is a muscular tumor that is non-cancerous. So I want to say that again, it's Mm -hmm. non-cancerous and they are really hard. They've been compared to the consistency of a golf ball and they could range in size from a pea or smaller to the size of a watermelon. 
which is mind-blowing to think. Yeah, we have pictures of some of our community members that have had huge masses of fibroids removed. Wow. And can fibroids happen on other muscles or on the body? No, it's, uh-huh. it's, it's either um, inside the uterine cavity, mm-hmm. inside the uterine wall, or extending from the uterus on the outside. Got it. Okay. I'm learning so much. So, uh, heavy menstrual bleeding, pain, bleeding between your periods. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's like this non-cancerous muscular tumor in the muscle of the uterus. Um, how does it get diagnosed? Is it like an ultrasound? Like, or how does it, how do you find that out? You're, you're really, uh, knowledgeable, Brittany. It's usually an ultrasound and a pelvic exam. And one of the things that we recommend oftentimes is that if you are diagnosed and you're being prepared prepped for a procedure, mm-hmm. an MRI is really the best way to really identify the exact location of each fibroid because mm-hmm. each fibroid has its own blood supply. So the really knowledgeable surgeons will want to know where that blood supply is before mm-hmm. they start a procedure. Yes. And so I heard you say earlier that, you know, uh, black women have more fibroids, higher mm-hmm. rates of fibroids than, than Caucasian women. Do you, you know, what else goes along with that besides that, like just being biologically shitty, like an unfair, you know, but like, what are some other like consequences of that? You know, I, we had, um, we had done an episode on uh, black women's uh, maternal health. Mm-hmm. And one of the biggest issues is, you know, racism in the healthcare system. Uh, mm-hmm. The doctors don't even know that they're doing it. But, you mm-hmm. know, if you look at the statistics of women's health, like the black, the black women, when they're giving birth, they're not treated as well. And they have consequences of that. And so I'm kind of wondering, like, where does um, race, society and fibroids kind of interact? Um, do you have any insights on that? Absolutely. Um, And I appreciate you bringing that up. There are significant health disparities. Mm -hmm. And we found through many of the research efforts that we've been involved in that different areas of the country, different um, pockets of certain cities, women who either don't have the access to care or when they do have the access to care, they will experience those type of racial, racially centered Um, diagnoses uh, or feedback, Mm -hmm. which is really scary and unfortunate in this day and age, but it does still happen. And um, the access to care is completely, uh, it's a pivotal part of the treatment and diagnosis process. And um, for me, I was diagnosed at 26, immediately told to have a hysterectomy. Wow. That is just crazy. The doctor didn't ask me what my, you know, childbearing goals were, what my, you know, personal, you know, (laughs) any, anything about, you know, what do you want for yourself? It was just like, well, you can have a hysterectomy to take care of it. And that was pretty much it. And that has other consequences, like, uh, all the menopause consequences of like osteoporosis and like, yeah, it's not even just about having babies. It's about like, (laughs) <laughs> taking out a major organ <laughs> that affects everything, exactly. right? Yeah. You can have prolapse, which then would take yeah. you from sanitary napkins to incontinence protection. Yeah. 
I mean, there's there's a whole host of things. Yeah. And and it's so important that we have this conversation and that patients be involved in the conversation mm -hmm. because that changes the dynamics of everything. Mm -hmm. And and earlier when I mentioned an MRI, a lot of an MRI is often cost prohibitive to many women. In fact, a lot of the procedures to treat uterine fibroids are cost prohibitive. Yeah. I know some of my surgeries have cost upwards of, well, one costs upwards of $50,000. That and, with insurance? Well, no, uh, insurance covered the, the vast majority of yeah. that. Yeah. But still, you know, if, if someone does not have health insurance, then it's just something, you know, they often suffer. Yeah. And um, these are things that we really need to address and make sure that all women have access to care. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. And also too, that we, we really tackle um, our own preconceptions, you know, whenever we interface with another person, mm -hmm. um, we need to just become more adept at hearing them as a person mm -hmm. and looking past skin color. That's so yes. important. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know why I have this paradigm in my mind. I always think about access to care is in like, can I, can I physically get there? And then I often forget like access is the healthcare uh, insurance piece too. And I think that it's an afterthought for me because most of my life I've been, you know, I grew up under Obamacare being covered by my mom, you know, and then mm -hmm. I had a career and, and now I'm, I'm in a, you know, Femtech Focus is a new nonprofit venture I started earlier this year. I currently don't have health insurance. And so now I hear access to care. I think about somehow, I don't know why, but I think about driving to a doctor. Can I do that? But then I also think about, oh yeah. And how the hell am I going to pay for that? You know? Mm -hmm. And when I think about fibroids, I've never had one. So I, I mean, maybe it feels like death, but when it comes down to, when you look at the bills at the end of the month, I wonder if these women are like, I don't, I can't go into more debt over this, you know, cramping, you know, and women are supposed to cramp. Maybe mm -hmm. I'm being too sensitive. Is there also that feeling where women are like, you know, they don't go to the doctor soon enough, uh, because Absolutely. they wait, because they think yeah. you're just being weak or something. I think there are many things women think that they should just suffer through the symptoms. Uh-huh. And, and also there's a fear of treatment and there's a fear of talking about it from, you know, women are afraid that they'll be, um, you know, labeled or just ostracized. And, and in a, many cultures um, outside of the United States, they are ostracized for heavy menstrual bleeding or not being able to conceive. And yeah. so um, our goal is to, we've started a new hashtag more than fibroids because there's so much to discuss around the whole menstrual journey. Yeah. And there's so much information that needs to be shared yeah. to make sure that women embrace their menstrual journey and know that they have the support that they need. Yeah. And I'm so glad that you started Femtech Focus and talk, you know, when you just shared about your own health insurance you now have a platform to make a difference mm -hmm. where that's concerned. So, 
you know, feel empowered because <laughs> there's always a solution. I'm like, my, my mind's always spinning like, okay, there's a problem. Okay. How can we solve that? Yeah, you know? How can we hack it? Yeah, hack exactly. it? yeah totally. Totally. Yeah. Well, I've hacked my uh, healthcare insurance issue a little bit because my co-founder is a gynecologist. So I've definitely mm-hmm. sent her pictures of things and being like, should I be concerned? <laughs> like, I feel like this. So I have a little telehealth in my pocket. Um, so I'm on a birth control that lets me skip my period. Would that help if I had fibroids? Would that help my symptoms? Birth control is definitely one of the treatment options. Uh-huh. You have uterine fibroids. I was on birth control pills for a long time mm-hmm. to manage the bleeding. Um, and then my body broke through the birth control pills and I started bleeding anyway. So then I had to look at another form of treatment, but um, birth control pills are often prescribed to address some of the symptoms around uterine fibroids. And there are other medical therapies that are coming on the market now that will help to halt the bleeding for a period of time. And I think that that's beneficial because I really feel for the women who are diagnosed with fibroids, have never heard the word fibroid, and then have to quickly decide on a surgery because oftentimes they're in crisis. You know, they're Mm -hmm. bleeding heavily or severely anemic and they need to make decisions. And the more tools that we can provide them with to make them comfortable, to give them the luxury of time to be able to make better decisions for their care, I think overall is a win-win for for all concerned. Yeah. Is that what the Fibroid Foundation does? Yeah, we 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 education is our top platform. So okay. providing that information to let women know what their options are, referring them to specialists. Um, we also are pushing a fibroid bill in Congress, which I'm super excited oh about. Oh my god, that's amazing! Yeah, and what's even wilder is that our future VP uh, is the sponsor in the Senate for the fibroid bill. So now we're waiting to see who will now carry that torch and take over now that she's assuming a new role. Um, But uh, Congresswoman Yvette Clark sponsored it in the House and Senator Kamala Harris sponsored the fibroid (gasps) bill in the Senate. And I'm so pleased because I worked really hard to advocate for that legislation with many, many meetings on Capitol Hill. And (gasps) it was really a gift of 2020 to see that legislation move forward despite the pandemic. So um, it will provide four years of funding um, for fibroid research at NIH, uh, $30 million for each year. So we're going to start asking everyone to write letters to support that legislation and research. And it's just really, really promising. I'm super excited, as you can tell. I mean, the listeners can't see this, but my face is like stuck in a giant smile. I am like, this is so cool. This is amazing. This is so important. I, you know, I just this morning, literally every day though, I talk to founders that say, I need funding for my startup because we need to do research because the data, we don't even have the data on the problem we're trying to solve. And I'm just like, this is not a venture capital funding issue. This is a government funding issue. We need the government to put NIH, NSF, 
HHMI, all of the all the government entities with funding for science need to step up and put money into this so that scientists can research, publish papers, so that innovators can take the published papers and say, oh, look at this is technically what a fibroid is doing on a biological level. Here's the solution, exactly. right? Or Oh, obviously I'm very excited too. Oh my God. That's amazing. You let us know what we need to do. We will have letter oh. writing parties. Like I'm all for it. Actually, I'm going to put a plug right here. We want to actually have a international femtech day. And so they said the best way to get a day, quote unquote day, is uh, to get somebody in politics to kind of stamp it, you know, with approval. So we're going to help each other. We're going to write letters. That sounds wonderful to me. I, we're all in. Um, yeah, I, I think we can do this. At the moment, we have, uh, I think it's about 50 members of Congress who have co-sponsored the bill. And now we need about 200 to see it through. 200 total. So about 100, 150 more. And, and we can do this. You know, oh, yeah. This affects so many people. And, you know, the women in the military, there's a huge need there because women in the military are suffering from endometriosis and uterine fibroids. Yeah. And so we need to be able to make sure that they have the support that they need. You know, sometimes um, I say you just got to play the game so you can win the game and then like do good with it. And I hate to think that we can get this passed in the government only if we argue our military will be more effective. But at the end of the day, whatever, <laughs> like whatever they care the most about, just get it approved. You know, that's how I tell founders when they're fundraising, they're like, but they, you know, this investor only cares about this part. And like, whatever, take their money. Like just, just you know, one of the reasons I bring that up too, is that Oftentimes when I was on Capitol Hill, I had to establish some common ground. Mm -hmm. And uh -huh. so if I was trying to advocate for uterine fibroid research and I was talking to a 20 something male staffer, <laughs> he was like, I, uh, yeah, I had to try like, to find some way, military, so, you know, so I'd be like, okay, so your boss is supporting the defense act, correct? And, and then, and then you'd see the light bulb go on. And I'd say they're women in the middle and they, oh, okay. And then I'd say, yeah. okay. You're a little hustler. You're a little <laughs> hustler and I love it. I love it. I love it. You I love it. You have to, Brittany. That's it. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and then oh, some of our, our other two platforms are research. Mm -hmm. uh, we actually have been published in um, medical journals on uterine fibroid research and have been on registry steering committees for that. And we also consult to the pharmaceutical industry, which I think your listeners might find interesting because women are finding their voices in so many different arenas. And yeah. it was really empowering for me the first time that I was at a meeting with all physicians and I learned that I had some significant information to contribute. And that never fails. And mm -hmm. so I think oftentimes, again, we don't always know our power. And yeah. it's so important to just find your authentic voice and share it because there's so much to be gleaned there. Yeah. Oh my gosh. 
hundred percent. Half of this podcast, I feel like, you know, I invite other people on as the experts and then I just talk about my own personal problems and people love it because <laughs> they're like learning and they're like, oh, and the host, she has this issue too, you know, like, thanks for sharing. Um, yeah, everyone can relate. I wanted to ask you really quickly about um, that pharmaceutical companies only designate about 4% of their R&D budget for women's health. Do you think that they're, you know, wanting to change that or see it as an issue? I hope they're wanting to change it. I know that I've found that since I've started advocating, there's been a huge shift in receptivity to patient input. And I'm super excited about that because I I haven't encountered much resistance. That's my personal experience. But I also do know when I look at mammogram machines and things like that, that mm-hmm. we have a long way to go. Um, yes. So I think that the networks like the one that you've created are really, really necessary mm-hmm. because women are sharing a viewpoint that previously was never shared. And we do need more focus on women's health. Mm -hmm. Um, We need a women's health division in, you know, some of the government agencies where there's one does not exist currently. And as you mentioned, um, the pharma industry needs to put more of a priority on that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, and I know that if men were suffering the way women suffer with fibroids and pregnancies and, and miscarriages and go to work, you know, I, it just, um, you know, they, they, there would be no problem getting medication, you know, treatment, you know, time off. I mean, yeah. it would, there would be no questions. Yeah. And I listened to some of the horror stories that our members have shared and it's mind blowing what women endure and they shouldn't have to. No. In the beginning of the pandemic, there was like a statistic that there is more men being hospitalized for COVID-19 than women. And so someone, a friend asked, do you think it's like a gender thing? And I said, I think it's a gender thing in terms of pain resistance. Women, (laughs) we could be just as sick as the man, but not go get help yet, you know? And then like, obviously it unfolded to be, uh, um, you know, it's not gender specific. It was just like, who could resist uncomfortability at home, you know? Exactly. I completely (laughs) agree. Well, tell me about um, a design patent that you have that's filed for heavy flow issues. Yes. Well, when I started the organization, I had personally been combining sanitary products because I couldn't find one on the market that really kept me from bleeding through my clothing. So that's when I did put my architect's hat on and I designed an undergarment and I designed a sanitary napkin also. So I filed two patents, the sanitary napkin and the undergarment. The sanitary napkin, Procter & Gamble came out with the exact one two months after I filed the patent. And people often ask me, didn't that upset you? And I said, no, because it told me that I was on to something. So the, so I, I let that, you know, I had to kind of just let that one go because it was already made. But the undergarment, I was successful in obtaining that patent. 
And so today I've created a name for the company. It's Comfort-A, Comfortable Lingerie for All Women. So I combined Comfortable and Lingerie. And there are three areas of focus, heavy bleeding and like post-maternity, everyday wear, and light incontinence. And so now we're in the sample phase of developing versions off based off that one patent. Um, we'll probably start just with uh, underpants first and then bridge into um, bras and loungewear. So um, I'm curious to see what your community thinks. And I'm also would love to get any feedback on resources for um, samples. Oh yeah, definitely. that's a whole new world for me. Yes, yes, yes. Well, I mean, just like you can offer so many resources to our innovators that are working in the fibroid space, we have plenty of innovators. I got, you know, one girl, she's making uh, vagina healthy yoga pants. So, I mean, I got a lot. I have a, another girl making uh, bras that respond to your hot flashes to cool you off. So, I got lots of people to hook you up with. No worries. <laughs> Yeah, we're so creative. We are so creative. Yeah. And my favorite part of the femtech community, besides it's just being like so important and so fun because it's science, like mm-hmm. the collaboration is off the charts. Oh, I've worked yeah. in other tech industries and the the um, energy around how can I help you and like how can you help me and the lack of NDAs I've had to sign is a sign of how we know that there's a bigger purpose here. Absolutely. You know, we're not competing. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I love that collaboration. I'm so inspired by Femtech. And that's a word that didn't exist. Yes, it's uh, it's a new word and I'm glad we are I think it can be improved. We've 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 done some episodes on like is it inclusive enough and all that stuff, but you know, you got to start somewhere. Exactly. Yeah. We're doing good and so, you know, <laughs> while we're all doing something good to further help someone else, uh, that's all you can ask. I that's think. it. What are some of your future goals for Fibroid Foundation? Well, we are now at 22 chapters and I really find that women need help where they live. And we wanna be a beneficial presence on the ground. And of course it's more difficult during the pandemic, but we are, for Fibroid Awareness Month in July, we're going to have a regional effort underway to connect women with chapter ambassadors in their cities and to um, bring more chapter ambassadors on board because we really want women to find the help that they need. Our Jamaica ambassador is just overwhelmed with inquiries. Um, there's so much need through throughout the world for support with heavy menstrual bleeding and access to care. And um, so this year we're really focused on that. Next month we will be hosting the first ever patient developed scientific summit. So February 22nd and 23rd, we're having Uh, physicians who are working on cutting edge research speak to our community. And so, you know, you talked about creativity and really trying to find ways to push the envelope. And 
I'm constantly brainstorming and touching base with our community to find out what they need, what they'd like to see so that we can be that support base for them. Mm -hmm. And I love that you're targeting women in their area, like in their community, because Mm -hmm. women in, in communities that don't have access, I can imagine, don't want to be told from someone who has all the access, here's your solution. You know, they want to be told from people within their community because usually those solutions are actually viable for them, right, to engage with. So, oh, wow, that's incredible that you have, like, all these chapters and stuff. And, I mean, it's it's horrible that, that they're, like, overrun with inquiry, but, it, I mean, it just proves that there's uh, a need, proves that there's yeah. a need. And you touched on the exact reason that we dis- we knew it was necessary to make it happen because women could read about you know the treatment options, but they couldn't get to someone to care for them. And how frustrating is that to be suffering and to not find anyone in your community to help you? So I thought we we've got to do everything we can to change that. Absolutely. Well, this has been so exciting. I want to ask you two last questions that our listeners love. The first one is if someone wanted to start a femtech company, what is an area in women's health and wellness that still needs innovating? Wow, that is a good question. Well, I did mention one earlier, mammograms, because that process is just need some help. <laughs> so I'll just leave that there. Yeah, Mammograms, 50 year old technology that squeezes your boobs between mm-hmm. cold metal plates in a cold room by yourself with your shirt off. And it's not even that good. Mm-hmm. Mammograms are just trying to take images of like shadows in your breasts. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't work with for women with uh, dense breasts, which is over 50% of women. Exactly. It's like literally garbage. <laughs> it's like so much work to be done. So much work. So much work. Um, our last question is, uh, what do you think the femtech industry as a whole needs the most right now in order to be successful? Acknowledgement. I think that, um, People are resistant to change, especially if it alters any perception of their own personal comfort. And I think that we're, we're going to launch a men's campaign this year because we need the men's voice um, as an acknowledgement that they're impacted by women's health issues. The entire family unit is impacted. We need the fellas in this. And um, we're all in this together. And so I think acknowledging that there's an issue that we can all collectively contribute to resolving is paramount. Absolutely. Um, You know, our tagline at Femtech Focus is women's health is everyone's health. Mm-hmm. Because our we're we're not well. You know what? Our family isn't well. Our babies aren't well. Our you know parents aren't well because we're usually the caregivers for them. Um, our economy isn't well. The businesses aren't well. Like literally, every it's everyone's health. Everything's health is women's health. So, so true. Yeah, right there with you, Brittany. You're doing such great work. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. Just me and my dogs and eight amazing uh, team members just that 
we just love saying the word vulva and fighting for women, women's health care. Um, I cannot wait to work with you on getting Congress to care more. I'm all about that. Let's Thank do it. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. This has been so amazing. Thank you so much for your time today and all that you do for women. Thank you. It has been my absolute pleasure and uh, keep doing what you're doing. Thank you for listening to my interview with Suteria Venable, founder and CEO of the Fibroid Foundation. I seriously had such a great time speaking with her. My favorite part of the interview was learning how she was able to get men and the U.S. government to care about women's uterine fibroids by explaining that these symptomatic fibroids, which we don't know enough about, are a huge burden on the women in the armed forces. This really supports my philosophy that I try to tell founders all the time. You need to find your angle. Not everyone you speak to will have a vulva or care about vulvas or believe you that the vulva industry is that big. So you need to find a narrative that gets people to open the door for you, asks you to sit down and says, tell me more. Alrighty, Femme fans, we have a bunch of exciting things that we just launched. We now have official Femme Tech Book Club, an account on Clubhouse, a new paid membership program, and fundraise consulting services. Oh my gosh. You can access all these new programs through our virtual network at femtechfocus.org. While there, you can also register for our upcoming events. Our next listening party is tonight, Monday, February 1st at 8 p.m. Eastern. We are entering into a month-long series of sex tech listening parties. So every Monday night in February, we're listening to an episode I did with a sex tech entrepreneur. Tonight, we're going to be hearing my interview with Cindy Gallup, the legend. She is the founder of Make Love, Not Porn. Again, you can access these events the clubs, and the services we offer at femtechfocus.org. While there, you can subscribe to our newsletter and consider donating to Femtech Focus, which is a nonprofit and relies on your generosity to operate. Alrighty, Fem fans, until next time, keep innovating, because improving women's health and wellness improves everyone's health and wellness.